As you're seated, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, first of all, to the Epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 13. There are really two things that we're doing this evening that may seem a bit out of order. Uh, This is the first, but I hope that as we read over this text and as we come to our conclusion here in a few minutes' time, we'll see, hopefully, um, that these things guide us in our understanding. And so first of all, Romans 13, and we begin there at the first verse. Hear now the word of our God. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves condemnation, sorry, damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause, pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We'll set that reading aside for a moment, we'll come back to it, God willing, at the very end of our time together this evening. But the second thing that I said that we'll be doing a bit out of order is actually taking up the subject of our lecture this evening. Now, as I said at the very onset, when we were looking at um, our first subject, we are looking at an organization of lectures that are intended to take us through the most fundamental aspects of covenant its most basic components, and so the idea of corporate theology comes into play. And then we move from corporations to covenants themselves. Is this, an, is this actually an ordinance for the new covenant believer? And then we come this evening to the subject that almost seems a bit out of place, and that is these historic covenants, the national covenant and the sovereignty. Now, if you have your copy of Covenant Renewal, The reason why we're doing this, of course, is going to be found in the second heading. In your covenant renewal, it's the second page in. It's labeled Section 2 with the heading Identification with the Historic Covenants. I won't read that paragraph to you just to say that that's the reason why we're taking up these two documents this evening. These are the two documents that are referred to in the paragraph. And as as you're looking through that paragraph, you'll see that these two documents feature highly. They are significant to the entirety of what we're doing in covenant renewal. And so we come to covenant renewal, we come to covenant renovation with these historic documents in mind. Now before we get to the documents themselves, I think it's important for us to step back and ask ourselves a question, and that is, well, what have we done thus far? What have we seen from God's word thus far about this entire practice of covenant renovation or renewal? And the first thing that I want to say is, of course, in our first lecture, we thought about corporations and corporate bodies. And we said that a corporate body is obliged to and judged by the moral law as a body. Now, it may be handy if you don't have it there. You might want to 
rather glossary here. Um, the glossary defines for us the terms that we'll be using uh, this lecture and the lectures ahead. But a corporate body, we said at the very onset, is a body that is obliged to and judged by the moral law. And that means there is a very basic corollary then that an action is considered corporate when something is done by either the generality of its members, by the body's representatives, or by a few with the permission of some kind given by the generality. So the question is, what makes a corporate action a corporate action? We said those three elements, scripturally speaking, define corporate activity. I'll read that to you just briefly again. A corporate activity is something done either by the generality of the body's members, by the body's representatives, or by a few with the permission of some kind given by the generality. And then last words the afternoon, we took up the subject of covenanting itself. And the basic conclusion that we came to was that as in the Old Testament, corporate religious covenanting is a religious duty in which we renew the covenant of grace, its duties, and our claims to the promises of Christ. I think that bears repeating, especially as we take up our subject this evening. The conclusion that we came to last Lord's Day afternoon was simply this. Just as it is in the Old Testament, corporate religious covenanting is a religious duty in which we renew the covenant of grace, both its duties and also the promises that are made to us in Christ. Now, as we're looking at these covenants, of course, the covenant national and solemnly, we're looking at the question, what relationship do these covenants have with the biblical definition of covenanting that we saw last Lord's Day? And we'll get to that question eventually, but our first question, of course, is, well, what are we really seeking to accomplish in the next 25 minutes? What exactly are we looking at when we take up these covenants? And to what extent are we trying to familiarize ourselves with them? And I'll say to you at the onset, friend, uh, what we're trying to do in 25 minutes would be difficult to do in 25 lectures. Um, these are documents that are deep. They have great historical context. They are rich theologically. They have a rich theological context, no less. And so there's no sense for us even try, trying to be exhausted this evening. Instead, our purpose here is simply to provide enough information so that hopefully, together, uh, we can talk about these things meaningfully, and also, hopefully, this creates something of a springboard for further reading and further discussion. In other words, our, our aims here are rather modest. Our purpose here is simply to understand the basic historic context of these covenants, uh, to review their most, their most fundamental principles, and also to evaluate those documents in relation to what we saw last Lord's Day, and other biblical qualifications and covenanting. In other words, friend, in the next 25 minutes we are doing high history and sweeping theological discussions, and really nothing more. But as I said before, it's hoped that as we leave this, uh, this half-hour segment of time, that together we'll be able to discuss these things meaningfully, and hopefully our reading also is, is encouraged as well. And so first of all, I want us to set before us the historic context of these documents. And again, friend, it's an ambitious subject to take on in about 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, really, we're spanning about a century of history. And so we're looking, of course, first of all, at the National Covenant, the first document that's listed in that paragraph in our covenant renewal. And that document has history that goes all the way back, of course, to the Scottish Reformation. And so we begin our timeline there at the year 1560. There, of course, the Scots Confession is signed. Parliament ratifies the Scottish Confession. And, of course, this confession, partially framed by John Knox, is a profession of the Protestant faith. 
It is a public renunciation of Roman Catholicism and a public maintenance of the truths of the gospel. In other words, throughout the documents that we're considering this evening, referred to as the Blessed Evangel. Well, when they refer to that, they refer to the Evangel, the Gospel, as defined in the Scots Confession, 1560. But it's important for me to tell you at the onset, especially as we consider these documents, and the National Covenant in particular, that even though the Scots Confession was ratified by Parliament, it was merely the faith, the Protestant faith, that was established by law. Not the church as an institution. The faith was established in Scotland, not the institution of the church as of yet. And so in 1567, just seven years later, barons, nobles, ministers of the gospel come together, John Knox being among them. And they come together to form a covenant. 1567, we have what we refer to as the Edinburgh Covenant. And this covenant, among other things, says thus, these members bound themselves, power and forces, to obstruct parliamentary legislation until, and, the, and I quote, the faithful Kirk of Jesus Christ professed within this realm shall be put in full liberty of the patrimony of the Kirk. Now the word patrimony there simply means the civil support of the church. And so that refers to the revenues of the state going to the church, in part, as well as the civil protection um, and also the prohibition of all of those other religions that might seek entrance into Scotland. In other words, this Edinburgh Covenant is a joint league in which all of these leaders in Scotland have joined themselves together to say, until the Kirk has been established by law, until the institution has been established by the civil magistrate, we will not participate in government. And so this quickly leads to the Church of Scotland becoming the established institution in Scotland. As one historian puts it, now she exercises, if you will, a kind of religious monopoly in the realm. That's 1567, the establishment of the Church of Scotland. In 1571, you have another covenant. It's referred to here as the Leith Covenant. And the Leith Covenant is merely an intent, sorry, an attempt to preserve what has been established. Again, barons, nobles, other civil magistrates and ministers of the gospel have covenanted to hold fast the Protestant religion as defined by the Scots Confession and the position of the church in its civil sphere. Now, it's 1571. 1572, of course, is important for us because, of course, you have the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in France in which the French Reformed Church is entirely overthrown. But you also have, in 1572, the death of John Knox. Now, that year becomes fundamental for the history of the Church of Scotland. Not only is it the passing of John Knox, but you also have the movement within the Church for greater reform. Eventually, this movement for greater reform will have it's perhaps most illustrious spokespeople in James and Andrew Melville, and others to come. That leads, then, in 1580, to what we refer to as the King's Confession. I won't say much about this confession, because this really forms the substance of the National Covenant that we're taking up later. But in 1580-1581, James VI is presented in his minority, that is, before his personal reign begins, he's presented this document, which, again, reiterates Scotland's commitment civilly to not only the Reformed religion, but to the Church of Scotland, her discipline, her institution. Now, in 1585, James does leave his minority. In other words, he becomes in full powers. He has all of the authority committed to him that a king would have. And so all the regents that have gone before are now ended. This really begins what we refer to as the Jacobean era. James, now in Scotland, is fully enthroned, has full command of the realm. 
which makes significant then what takes place next. In 1592, again referring to the institution of the church, we have a legislation that's passed under James's auspices, referred to often as the Golden Act. Uh, some historians refer to this as the Magna Carta of Scottish Presbyterianism. And really what this act did, it was nothing more than a reiteration that the Kirk was supposed to receive the revenues from the state that was promised to her. It also precluded the possibility for bishops to take all the benefices that the previous Roman Catholic bishops had held in the land. In other words, what you have in 1592 is a statement, a clear piece of legislation that says the Kirk of Scotland, as she is reformed, according to her first book of discipline and her confession of faith, is the only religion, uh, this is the language of the text, the only religion maintained in the realm. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because for the next several years, under James VI, Scotland maintains that position. There is no inroads made really by Rome. In fact, Rome is largely suppressed, even though it had contingents in the highlands that were certainly eager to see Rome return. No, in 1592, you have Scotland moving very steadfastly toward reform. In fact, in ways that Knox never saw in his own lifetime. And so in 1596, almost as a kind of culmination of this, the Scottish Church launches into covenant renewal. Now again, the covenant that's renewed there is the covenant that we refer to as the King's Confession, ratified in 1581, but really formed in the year 1580. And this, this covenant renewal takes place in the context of the General Assembly of the Kirk of Scotland, and it's attended with great revival. The people of God are greatly encouraged throughout the realm. And it becomes, really, almost the high point for the Jacobean Church. For the Church of Scotland under James, 1596 opens with this wonderful picture of national and ecclesiastical reform, which makes striking what follows. 1596 was the high point, and also really the marked low point for the Church. In December 17, 1596, Edinburgh erupts into a riot. Nobody quite knows what to make of it. According to Presbyterian ministers at the time, the riot took place because there were members of the congregation, simple members of, of the church in St. Giles, who were convinced that Highlanders had invaded the Parliament House and were killing both the Protestant lords and also taking captive James VI. And so they rose to go to the Parliamentary House to free their king from the hands of Roman Catholics. That's the Protestant account of what took place. Archbishop Spottiswood, uh, an Episcopalian at the time and very friendly with the king, records it otherwise. He says that he actually believes that these Presbyterian ministers were preaching regicide. History has shown that the Presbyterian account is far more accurate, uh, though some in the crowd probably were doing their own thing. Um, the ministers there were not preaching that it was right for anyone to be taking the king's life. But at any rate, however one interpreted it, James did not like this. And again, Spottiswood, Archbishop Spottiswood, records in his history that that moment marked a very radical change in James' ecclesiastical policy. From 1596 on, the Jacobean Church now moves in a way that we would see as a kind of anglicizing. It becomes more and more like the Church of England. Her rituals now become more and more, well, they become more, uh, more like what you would find in the South. Leading all the way to 1618, in one sense, 
one of the lowest points in Scottish in the Scottish uh, in the history of the Scottish Church. In 1618, you had the Articles of Perth. There were five articles that were passed by the Perth Assembly that was largely controlled by James VI at this point. And these five articles were very simple. The first was, if you were to receive the Lord's Supper, you were to kneel before the sacrament. It also allowed for private baptism, private communion. It required members of the church to receive confirmation from bishops, bishops being reintroduced again by James VI. And it also required the observance of holy days, such as Easter and Christmas. All of those things had been removed from the Church of Scotland beforehand. But in the Articles of Perth in 1618, all of those things came back. This is why James Melville, in his autobiography, the very last section of it, simply titles the entire work that he's written, a large work of about almost 600 pages, as a true narration of the declining age of the Kirk. In other words, there were those who saw the Church of Scotland sliding into decline because of these things. And so, as James put it, these were simply steps of defection, one followed by another. And if Perth was a kind of culmination, it certainly wasn't the greatest. The greatest would come through Archbishop Laud as he created a new Scottish prayer book. And this really becomes the catalyst for the National Covenant. Now, really, what Charles now Charles I is trying to do in Scotland is to bring Scotland very drastically, rapidly into conformity with the Church of England. And so he commissions Archbishop Laud, who was very much an Anglo-Catholic uh, before Anglo-Catholics existed, to really rewrite the whole book, bring them into conformity, and push upon them really the fullness of the structure and the practice of the Church of England. Now, 15, oh, sorry, 1637, July 23rd to be exact, the prayer book was supposed to be used for the first time. It was supposed to be used in St. Giles Cathedral. And as we all know, um, as, as well famed, the stole is thrown. The riots ensue. Edinburgh refuses absolutely to have the prayer book used. Parts of Scotland, such as in Aberdeen, they use the prayer book still. But throughout Scotland, the riots spread. And it became very clear that the nation wanted nothing to do with this kind of anglicizing that both Charles I and Archbishop Laud had in mind. And so this leads us, of course, as you might expect, to conflict. Everyone hears the cries of war on the horizon. And so, because many have gathered themselves together, afraid that they might be subjugated even further, that the reform that had been going on for so long would actually be finally extinguished, it was decided that that the realm would renew the king's confession. Remember that document, 1580-1581. This takes place, as is well known, the 27th of February, 1638. This document that was ratified is by that which we refer to as the National Covenant. I, w- I want to stress just briefly here, friend, that the reason why the 1580 Covenant is brought back and in some sense renewed, though other pieces are added to it as well, is because of this national crisis. It is very much assumed that Charles I will be raising forces to defeat the opposition. And so both church and state are almost at a point of extinguishment. They really do expect that Charles will be victorious. And so, to hazard their lives in defense of the gospel, they renew covenant. Now, in 1638 to 1640, 
the anticipated war does take place. It takes place in two forms, which we often refer to as the First and Second Bishops' War. And in God's providence, Scotland is victorious in both cases. By the way, the Blue Banner, that we all know, that Blue Banner is flown, first of all, in the First, first Bishops' War. And you remember what's written on it. For Christ's crown and covenant. The covenant that's referred to there is the national covenant. For Christ's crown and covenant refers back to that moment, February 27, 1638, when the King's Confession is renewed. In 1642, you have the inauguration then of the English Civil War. In other words, what takes place is Charles longs to have the money that he needs to invade Scotland, and this time successfully. So he calls for Parliament. As you all know, Parliament refuses to give him money. Charles then declares war on Parliament. Parliament, of course, at that time being largely Puritan-controlled. Now, there's a very real difficulty at this stage. First of all, the likelihood of success for either parliamentary or Scottish forces seems rather remote. You remember Charles I is married to a Catholic queen. And also, it seems very likely that Charles I is quite willing to make concessions to Roman Catholics. So what is most likely is that Charles is going to gain support from the continent and destroy both the parliamentary forces and the Scottish as well. They know, the English that is, they know that they need Scottish support. And so Scotland promises support so long as both England and Scotland, and Ireland inclusive, would come together in a religious covenant. This religious covenant is the solid leaking covenant that we take up before us this evening. And so, in a very rough way, friend, that is the context, the historical context of these two documents. These are documents that were forged in history, in times of of significant oppression and significant fear, but they were forged for the sake of preserving the true religion as confessed and established in these realms. And that brings us then to the documents themselves. I want us to take up these documents, of course, not in their full not in their fullness. Uh, friend, these are documents that we couldn't read together in 30 minutes' time. So briefly what I want us to do is just see the basic you could say the basic elements of these documents as they come to us. And we'll do that precisely as we saw covenants in the scriptures, divisible both by oaths and vows. And so take, for instance, oaths, and especially as we have it in the National Covenant. The covenant reads, We believe with our hearts, confess with our mouths, subscribe with our hands, and constantly affirm before God and the whole world that this only is the true Christian faith and religion. Later on, the covenant reads, promising and swearing by the great name of the Lord our God that we shall continue in the obedience of the doctrine and discipline of this Kirk. Again, just a little further, the covenant reads, that this, our union and conjunction, may be observed without violation. We call the living God, the searcher of hearts, to witness. That really is the substance of the oath. Who knoweth this to be our sincere desire and unfeigned resolution, as we shall answer to Jesus Christ in the great day, and under the pain of God's everlasting wrath, and of infamy, and loss of all honor and respect in this world. In other words, the National Covenant very intentionally is swearing to God. Very, very clearly, they are invoking God to bear witness to what they're doing. Now here the Solemn League and Covenant. It reads, after mature deliberation, resolved and determined to enter into a mutual and solemn leaguing covenant, wherein we all subscribe, and each one of us for himself, with our hands lifted up to the Most High God, do swear. A little, late, a little later it reads, 
This covenant we make in the presence of Almighty God, the searcher of all hearts, with a true intention to perform the same, as we shall answer at that great day, where the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed. A friend, very plainly, this is not merely a political document in either case. These are religious oaths that are being made. And they're being made as nations, as a corporate entity. Now, what are the vowels? I want you to notice just here, the National Covenant, though really the entirety of the Solomon Legion Covenant can be read the same way. Here the National Covenant reads, We agree and resolve all the days of our life constantly to adhere unto and to defend the foresaid true religion. That's the first vowel. We agree and resolve, it reads. Later on it says this, We promise and swear by the great name of the Lord our God to continue in the profession and obedience of the foresaid religion. And that we shall defend the same and resist all the contrary errors and corruptions according to our vocation and to the uttermost of that power that God hath put in our hands all the days of our life. In other words, friend, the National Covenant is very clear. We are promising to do something quite specific, maintaining the true religion in our realm. The Solemn Legion Covenant, every one of its paragraphs, begin the same way. We promise or we adhere to. These are all things that our forebears are doing, that they see as vowing unto the Most High. Now, friend, I said before that when we look at corporate religious covenanting, we're supposed to understand that in a real sense we are renewing the covenant of grace. In other words, we are seeing the duties that are prescribed for us in the Word of God, and we're seeing the promises that we're laying hold of there only through Christ. And so in this way, friend, we're supposed to expect that if this is truly a religious covenant, and it's truly a covenant in its most biblical sense, we should see that same kind of language. And both in the National Covenant and Solemn League and Covenant, you have this. I'll just read to you two paragraphs, one from the National and the other from the Solemn League. The National Covenant reads thus, We humbly beseeching the Lord to strengthen us by his Holy Spirit for this end, the end for, for described, and to bless our desires and proceedings with a happy success, that our religion and righteousness may flourish in the land, to the glory of God, the honor of our King, and peace and comfort of us all. Notice how the covenanters swear themselves here. They are those who are humbly beseeching the Lord to strengthen us by his Holy Spirit. They are looking to the grace of God to fulfill what is covenanted. The solemn leaving covenant is even more in fact. I want you to note this. It reads, We shall reap sincerely, really, and constantly through the grace of God endeavor in our several places and callings the preservation of the Reformed religion. Then, in the very next, uh, toward the end of the paragraph, rather, it reads thus. We most humbly beseeching the Lord to strengthen us by his Holy Spirit for this end, and to bless our desires and proceedings with such such success. Now, Fred, I I just read to you a sampling of these two documents, and I really encourage you to go back and read them in thorough this week. But what you notice from this very brief survey is that these are oaths that are made, of course, before the Most High God, These are vows that are paid to him, and that these things are done with a real acknowledgement of one's dependence upon the grace of God. All of these, friend, we can't miss, are constituent elements of covenanting, as we saw it last Lord's Day afternoon. And so as we close, I want us to look very briefly at the general principles that are derived from these documents. And, friend, I'll say this to you now. it would, be, it would be foolhardy for me to try to prove all of these things to you this evening. So my aim here is simply to raise the issues for you, so that as you are reading over these documents, they, they don't surprise you. 
And then also, as we consider these things together, hopefully this will generate the kind of conversation and thought that best prepare us for entering into covenant afresh uh, this coming Lord's Day. And so I want us to look at these general principles, and I'll just raise three, and friend, I could raise so many more. Um, but these are the three, perhaps, most controversial aspects of all of these covenants. First of all, the natural covenant maintains previous reformed truths and practices. The natural covenant reads, for defending the true religion as it was then reformed. Later on it reads, convinced in our minds and confessing with our mouths that the present and succeeding generations in this land are bound to keep the foresaid national oath and subscription inviolable. In other words, the natural covenant says this, previous attainments in Reformation have continued obligation. Reformation attainments must be maintained. The Solomonian covenant is the same. Uh, they vow here the preservation of, our sound, our, of ourselves and our religion from utter ruin and destruction, according to the commendable practice of these kingdoms in former times, and the example of God's people in other nations. According to both covenants, they are simply maintaining what has already been attained. According to these documents themselves, they are simply preserving what they've already possessed. Now, if that's the first principle, the second major principle, of course, is what we refer to largely as the establishment principle, the civil establishment of the church. I want you to notice how the National Covenant reads. It says here, it says here there is no other face of Kirk, nor other face of religion, than was presently at that time by the favor of God established within this realm, referring back to 1592. But then note this. Which therefore is ever styled God's true religion, Christ's true religion, the true and Christian religion, and a perfect religion, which, by manifold acts of parliament, and here's the emphasis, all within this realm are bound to profess, to subscribe the articles thereof, the confession of faith, to recant all doctrine and errors repugnant to any of the said articles. According to the National Covenant, there is to be one religion in the realm, as defined by the Scots Confession and maintained by the Kirk. There is no other face of Kirk, it says here. There is one church to be established in the realm. The Solomon Covenant does similarly. We shall also, with all faithfulness, endeavor the discovery of all such as have been or shall be incendiaries, malignants, or evil instruments by hindering the reformation of religion. And I could read much further there, but the idea in the Solomon League there is that anyone who would oppose the Reformed religion as defined in the Solomon League would be facing civil punishment. And here's how they're described. They are those who are called incendiaries, malignants, or evil instruments. Now, friend, the principle behind this, I don't want to tarry too long here, but the principle behind this is very basic. They see here that the church is supposed to be is supposed to receive from the civil magistrate real support, and not merely financial support. We're not merely here talking about the regnum donum. We're here looking far broader. She can also be protected even from her spiritual enemies by silencing the voice of heretics, by, by suppressing those who would oppose the authority and the truth of the church. And that brings us to our third point, and that's the reformed civil constitution that you have in these documents. In the National Covenant reads, we perceive that the quietness and stability of our religion and Kirk doth depend upon the safety and good behavior of the King's Majesty. My friend, I'll stop there just for a moment. I want you to note the implicit emphasis. Um, they didn't use italics in that day, but I think it's useful for us to point out. Um, 
the stability and quietness of the kirk depends upon the safety and good behavior of the king. This is not a sense, there's no sense in which you can read the national covenant here as urging for an implicit faith or simply allowing the king to do whatever he likes. No. Instead, it goes on to say this. The king then should be a comfortable instrument of God's mercy granted to this country for the maintaining of his kirk and administration of justice amongst us. We protest and promise with our hearts under the same old handwritten pains that we shall defend his person and authority with our goods, bodies, and lives, and note this, in the defense of Christ, his evangel, liberties of our country, ministration of justice, and punishment of iniquity against all enemies within this realm and without. Again, the National Covenant is quite clear. This is not an implicit oath where the king may merely may do whatever he likes, and because he's the king, he simply follows suit. The king is promised here their loyalty insofar as he preserves the peace of the realm and of the kirk, and insofar as this man demonstrates that he is one who is concerned first and foremost for the defense, here it reads, of Christ and his evangel. The Solomon League Covenants are different. As nations, here's what the Solomon League reads. We shall, each one of us, according to our place and interest, okay, so this refers here, of course, to nobles, barons, and the like, endeavor that they may remain conjoined in a firm peace and union to all posterity, and that justice may be done upon willful opposers thereof. And manner expressed in the press of martyr. Now, friend, in those three very basic principles, um, the attachment to previous Reformation attainments, the civil establishment of the church, and an explicitly reformed civil constitution, we're supposed to see here really the crux of these covenants. These are covenants, of course, that carry real implications for the church. But they are also covenants that really pertain to the entire society, both church and state, in these realms. Now, I read here before to you Romans 13, and I did that for what might seem almost an ironic reason, but I think helpful at this stage. The covenants that we're saying in our covenant renewal that have descending obligation are these covenants that are manifestly political. And a basic question you might ask at this stage is, why is this so crucial? Why is this something that we're even trying to renew? Why is something so political now made such a large part of church life? And in many ways, friend, it does bring us back to Romans 13. In Romans 13, of course, you have the Apostle Paul giving to us very clearly the ordinance of God, the civil magistrate. But I want you to notice, friend, as the Apostle describes for us the civil magistrate who is the ordinance of God, who is ordained by God to do this work. Note how he describes him. He says here in the third verse, For rulers are not the terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then be, not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Striking the very next verse is he writes to the church of Rome, note what he says here, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. Now, friend, I, I'm not intending here to give to you a full demonstration of the establishment principle. But the basis of these covenants is really found in what the apostle here mentions. That the civil magistrate has a solemn obligation, he is to be considered a lawful magistrate, to maintain the good suppress the evil. And by the way, 
He doesn't interpret the good and the evil in the way that we 21st century Westerners do, where it pertains only to the second table of the law. This also applies to the first table too. Nowhere in Scripture is good described only as regarding our duty to man. The Apostle never defines it that way. And so when our forebears joined in these political covenants, friend, all that they were doing was they were saying that the civil magistrate of the church and all of the realm were to maintain both tables of the law and were covenanting to do so through the Lord Jesus Christ. When we renew covenant, that's precisely what we're renewing. That in every sphere in our lives, Jesus Christ will be looked to for support as we seek to be faithful to him in our generation. I'll just make one more comment before we close. Friend, I, I, I know that these are uh, themes that we don't often think about, and so I, I do hope that this generates conversation, that this is not the end of the conversation, but in many ways the beginning. Um, and please, uh, if you do have any questions or comments, um, if you'd like to discuss any of these matters further, uh, please see myself any member of the session, um, especially before we come to covenant renewal, God willing, uh, next words. Well, as we close, let's do so by first of all going to the throne of grace together. Let's stand up right Our gracious and merciful God, we come before you, Father, thankful that you've given to us your word, that you've given to us Christ and his true and blessed evangel. Father, we thank you that you've deposited these things even even in these outer miles. Father, we ask that you make us a people who are grateful for these inestimable gifts. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to be people who more and more emulate our faithful forebears as they sought to be faithful in their age, even in the ages of decline that they saw them. Lord, help us to be very much the same. Lord, we ask that in your grace, as a congregation, as a denomination, Father, we pray that in the renewing of this covenant, we would find grace to support us in fulfilling these engagements. But also, Father, we pray that you would make these, even these moments fruitful for Christ's sake. Lord, we ask that even through these endeavors, we would find out the Lord our God, once again visiting upon our nations here, his grace and reclaiming souls to himself, and setting up the end sign of Christ. Heavenly Father, we ask you to be with us, and be with us especially now as we look to the worship of our holy, of our great and gracious God. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.